So good to walk in this morning and see the sun shining. I was going to advertise this morning to buy gopher wood, but uh, I think maybe the sun's going to shine. But it's good to see each of you here. We're glad to have visitors among us, as we're always glad to have visitors, and we want you to feel welcome. We want you to come back and worship with us anytime that you can. This morning, I want to talk to you for a little bit about the thief on the cross. You see, the thief on the cross has become legendary to a lot of people. There's a lot of things about the thief on the cross that I don't understand why people are so attracted to him. I don't understand why people would want to hold up as a mentor or as an example someone who had lived the majority of their life in rebellion to God and in living a life that was hostile to fellow man. But today there's a number of people who suggest that he is an example of deathbed repentance. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's people who want to live the worldly lifestyle. And then right there before they die, just before the the click of death takes place, they will say, okay, Lord, accept me now, I accept you. Others look at him as an example of how one can be saved without being baptized. Many of these people will say, I want to go to heaven just like the thief on the cross. I want to say, Lord, remember me in your kingdom, and the Lord somehow just accept me for that. In fact, if you go to the website of Billy Graham, you will notice on his website that he will say, if you are now a believer, you ought to be baptized into a local church, but don't think that you have to be baptized because the thief on the cross was not baptized. The truth is, this text from Luke 23 just begs to be studied, to be understood and to be accepted by everyone who is going to make it to heaven. There's four things I'd like for us to discuss in our lesson this morning. I want to talk about the particulars of that day. I want us to put ourselves in the biblical text and see what things were going on that brought that lead us to and has brought us to the section of the thief on the cross. Number two, I want us to look at the petition of this penitent man. What did he ask? Why did he say what he said? Number three, I want us to look at the promise of the prince, the prince of peace, Jesus Christ. What did he say to that thief who was begging of him? And then number four, we want to look at some of the prospects for God's people. That is to apply what we've learned. It was a Friday before the Passover began on Saturday. In John's account, in John chapter 19, in verse 14, John says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. To say it's the day of preparation, to say it's the day before. But many times we think in our modern day time where our clocks or our days begin at midnight. But for the Jewish people, the day begins at sundown. And for them, whenever it is what we would call around six o'clock, but at sundown, the Jewish people consider that on Friday beginning the Sabbath or the Saturday. 
And so Jesus is now at uh, the day of preparation. It's on a Friday. Jesus had been arrested and tried first by Annas, then by Caiaphas, then by the whole council. Then he was tried by Pilate. Then he was tried by Herod. And then he was brought back before Pilate again. And there Pilate pronounced the sentence of crucifixion upon him and condemned him to die. Notice John 19, verses 15 through 17. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he took him and led him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away, and he began, he bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now I want you to notice, as you look at the text here, that these people hate Jesus so badly, they want him killed. This has been an ongoing battle with these chief priests, with these scribes, from the time Jesus began his personal ministry. He called into question what they were doing, what they were teaching, and they hated him. You can tell the level of some people's hatred by who they will befriend. These people had hated the Roman government. And yet when Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? They said, We have no king but Caesar. They had nothing but hatred for that Roman government. But they loved the Roman government even more than they loved Jesus. But there was on this day a special amnesty program where the Roman official would take one person who was incarcerated and let them go. On this day, Pilate, being a rather devious type fellow, said, I know what I'll do. I'll find one of the meanest men that I have in prison, and I will give them a choice. You can have either him or Jesus. And so he put Barabbas before them. And again, in Mark chapter 15, we read now that at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask what to do, just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who is called the king of the Jews? So they cried out, Crucify him! You have to see the events that are taking place here. Pilate is being put in a box. He is being forced to put Jesus on the cross. He was taken to that place called the place of the skull. Again, going to John 19, verses 17 and 18. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, Jesus in the center. 
Now we learn it's not just Jesus that's going to the cross there that day. There are two other people who are going to be crucified. The Romans would have done this on a periodic basis. Whenever they had a gathering of criminals whom they wanted to use as examples, and it was according to the Hebrew writer, chapter 13 and verse 12, he said that he might suffer or sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The Romans used this means of punishment to instill fear in the people. They wanted people as they would walk by on a main road to see those people hanging there in agony and think, if I rebel, if I'm a criminal, I too may be killed and hang on that cross. Two men were guilty. They deserved to be there. They were getting a fitting punishment for their crime. But one was perfectly innocent, had done nothing wrong, and that was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I'd like for us to focus a little closer on the two criminals I would like for us to focus a little more on what this penitent prisoner had to say to Jesus. Luke calls them, in the King James, malefactors. The New King James uses the term criminals. Literally, the original word means an evildoer. That tells you that these people are noted by their behavior. But when we go to Matthew and Mark's account, they call them robbers. In Matthew's account and Mark's account, not thieves. You know, we have adopted this word, the thief on the cross, and I'm using that because it's accommodative. But the word that is used here is to describe not a person who sneaks into your house and steals something, but a person who would come and put a knife to your throat and say, Give me your money. Give me your jewelry. Give me your valuables. That's what a robber is. Matthew says the two robbers were crucified with him, one at the right and another on the left. Mark says with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on their left. They must have been very bad men to have deserved capital punishment. But I want to look at the attitudes of these two men who were crucified with Jesus. What did they think about Jesus? What did they think about themselves? According to Matthew's account, at the beginning, they both reviled him. What does it mean to revile someone? It means to say evil things about them. It means to mock them. Listen to Matthew 27, 41. Likewise, a chief priest also mocking with their scribes and elders said he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him now deliver him, or if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers, notice that, plural, who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. Both of them were looking at Jesus and saying, why don't you save us and save yourself? 
But one of the criminals just maintained his harsh attitude and unbelieving of Jesus. In Luke's account, he says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. I think it's significant. Luke focuses on one. You know why? Because he's going to tell us about the other who evidently had some conscience. He had some sort of attitude that says, you know, really what we're doing is not right. And so Luke 23, verse 40 says, But the othering, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see the change of heart that takes place in this man. Well, I want you to look closer at the question he asked. And he says he deserved death. I know what I have done. I know what kind of man I am. I know the robberies that I have participated in. He's very likely a Jew in Jerusalem who's become a noted criminal. If he was a Jew, he would have understood the concept of eternal destinies. I thought about, quite often, about what people know. Do you realize here in the United States, just about everybody at this point knows about Christianity? And you go to a prison system and you will find a lot of people who are willing to find religion. They want the religious people to come in because they know there's an eternal destiny. They don't want to lose their soul. They have time to think about it. This man made a spiritual request of Jesus. You know, the other was saying, if you're the Christ, come down. Let's save yourself and save us. Not save us spiritually, but they were saying save us physically. He addressed Jesus as Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's important now. Because he recognizes that Jesus is not an ordinary person. And you might ask the question, what does it mean when he says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom? How did he know that Jesus was a king? Well, evidently he's heard Pilate many times say, what shall I do with this Jesus, the king of the Jews? On a plaque over the head of Jesus, it had written in multiple languages, the king of the Jews. But very likely, if he's in Jerusalem, he's heard of Jesus because his reputation went far and wide. And John the Baptist had begun in Judea preaching. And Jesus, after John died, preached the same message. We read in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Now after John was put in prison, 
Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They were hearing the message, The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And here is this man who looks at Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knew Jesus was on a cross. And he knew Jesus was about to die. He had to have some understanding of a kingdom. Perhaps. In John chapter 18, as Pilate queried Jesus, Are you a king? And Jesus would respond, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Therefore, my kingdom is not from here. This robber knew a lot more than people sometimes understand. And it's very likely he could have been baptized either by John or by Jesus. Let's look at Jesus as he responds to this man and the promise that he offers the first thing that you notice when you have Jesus on the cross, first thing that he says is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus, even though he's the one being crucified, has a concern about other people. I don't know about you, but somebody drives nails in my hands and my feet. My thoughts are going to be on the pain and the agony I'm in. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a remarkable, remarkable attitude of showing compassion for other people. But Jesus' response to his request was immediate, it was simple, and it was totally undeserved. He said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, for just a moment, let's take that statement right there and analyze it a little bit. Let's look a little closer. Today indicates that their fate was certain and that there would be no more wait. If I tell you today is the last day that this world will stand, there will be no Monday. If you have someone who uses the word today, that indicates it's now. Their fate was not going to change. They both were going to die. And so this paradise that is coming is not going to be later. It's going to be now. You will be with me. He, this indicates he's going the same place Christ is going. Just a few hours before Jesus spoke these words, he said to his disciples in John 14, verse beginning, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and... Receive you to myself that where I am, 
there you may be also. When he says, you're going to be with me, he's going where Jesus is going. And then he says, it's paradise. And of course, what comes from that is, what's paradise? To understand that, you have to understand the realm of the dead. And when you understand that, you understand that there's a place in the Bible that is called Hades. It's a place where the Spirit goes before the resurrection. We read about it in Acts 2, verses 27 and 31. Prophetically, David says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Dropping down to verse 31, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In Luke 16, in verse 23, the passage that discusses the rich man and Lazarus said, and being in torments, that's the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now what we understand from that is there's two parts to this place called Hades. There's on the one side a place called Torments where the rich man went. On the other side there's a place called Paradise where Lazarus went and where Jesus went and where the robber went as well. What do we know about this place? Not a lot. Paul, in recounting in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, said that he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. That is, you and I do not know everything about this place, but the word paradise itself ought to let us understand it's a good place. According to Luke 16, it would be a place of comfort. In Revelation 2 and verse 7, the church was struggling under persecution and the kind of difficulty they were facing. And he said in chapter 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You have to understand, paradise is the good place. So Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I think I understand what was going on that day. I believe I understand what the robber was thinking and saying. I understand what Jesus promised him. But now, what does that mean for those of us who live in 2013, over two, almost 2,000 years removed from that event? What does that mean? It means that God extends grace to vile sinners. One of the problems that many people will express to me when I try to talk to them about becoming a Christian, they say, I'm not good enough to become a Christian. I'm not worthy to be a Christian. Guess what? Nobody is. There's no person that can say, here Lord, I present myself to you as a perfect individual with no flaws at all. That person is self-deceived. Because every person has sin in their lives. 
There's none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3, 9 and 10. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, here's the way Paul expresses it. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man would someone even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a lesson in that. We look at that robber who was on that cross and we say, he deserved to die. Well, guess what? You and I do too. Die spiritually. But God loves us. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul's telling Timothy about his background. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. You see, Paul said, God's using me an example. I'm a vile sinner, have been a vile sinner. Tried to turn my life around. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If we were to make a list of everybody that we thought was totally unworthy of coming to the Lord, this would be the list. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extorters, nor will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, notice the past tense, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Second lesson we need to learn is there's no comfort for the presumptuous here. This last minute deathbed repentance. You know, this idea, well, here's what I want to do. I want to sow my wild oats. And I want to be able to live up the worldly lifestyle. And then, you know, right there, you know, when I'm in the hospital and they're saying, we don't know if he's going to live or die, then I want somebody to call the preacher and tell him to come down here because I want to be baptized or I want to repent of my sins. I want to wait right there to the last minute so I can get all the fun out of it I can get. There's a real big problem with that. If you're looking at sin as being fun, then you don't appreciate what the Bible's teaching about it. And here's another point. Too many people have thought that they had plenty of time. This congregation has been plagued with a tragedy after a tragedy this spring. And I can't tell you how many people think that life is just going to keep on going. 
James says in James chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. For whereas you do not know what will be happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We don't even know if we're going to get home today, folks. I wouldn't be planning my future, my eternal soul of, I'm just going to wait a little while. I'll tell you a man who thought that way. In Luke 12, verse 16, Then he spoke a parable to those, or to them, saying, The ground of a certain man brought, rich man brought, or yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, I'll build greater, and I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be that you have provided? The problem is we don't know when we're going to drop dead of a heart attack. Or we're going to die in some accident. We don't know when the day may come when we will say, I don't care anymore. You know what happens to a person who lives in sin so long? They get where they don't care anymore. This passage is not a pattern for salvation under the New Testament. I don't care whether it's Billy Graham or Jerry Falwell or whatever denominational preacher wants to tell you. You don't have to worry about being baptized because the thief on the cross was not baptized. This man lived and he died under the Old Testament system. Never was under the New Testament. So whatever is said with regards to salvation, has to be understood is this is not in the age of the Christian age. Some do so so they can deny baptism. I just don't get it. I really don't. I don't get people saying you don't have to be baptized when the New Testament is so clear. Even when John the Baptist was preaching, Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You know, the Bible's really clear. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. If the Lord says to do it, I'm going to listen to the Lord. Acts 22:16. Ananias to Paul says, him, Now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Problem was, this thief, this robber, waited too late. Almost too late. He was granted an opportunity. He had a change of heart. 
He opened his eyes. He saw himself and he saw Jesus accurately. I'm a sinner. He's a Savior. And I need to turn to him to deal with my sins. He pleaded for mercy. And it was granted. What are you going to do? Are you going to plead for mercy? What will you do today? Take your songbook out. And let's sing this song of encouragement. And if you need to respond, please do so while we stand, while we sing.